Welcome to the Collective Voice of Health IT, a Weedy podcast. Hello, and welcome to episode five of the Collective Voice of Health IT, a Weedy podcast where we talk with prominent healthcare thought leaders about key themes and topics in healthcare IT. I'm your host, Matthew Walbright. My day job is Chief Legislative Affairs Officer for Zealous Payments. Zealous, Z-E-L-I-S, is a healthcare and financial technology company located in beautiful Bedminster, New Jersey. I also serve as the communication committee chair for Weedy. That's W-E-D-I, Weedy, and Weedy is the producer of this podcast. I'd also like to quickly introduce this podcast producer, Michael McNutt, director of education and events for Weedy. He's also the owner of that big movie voice at the beginning of the show. Uh, Michael can't actually speak to us today, but I see his face and he's looking fabulous and, uh, and productive right? Because he's the producer. So Michael's on staff with Weedy. Weedy is a national membership organization where the health information technology community connects, collaborates, and creates solutions for better health system. And in that spirit, I'm excited to introduce our guest today. Laura Hoffman is the Assistant Director of Federal Affairs with the American Medical Association, commonly referred to as the AMA. Laura is also an active member of Weedy and serves on the Weedy Privacy Workgroup. Laura, uh, I'm excited to talk to you today because I think our discussion today is going to be a perfect complement to what we talked about in our last episode with Mari Savickas, right? Mari Savickas was at AMA as well. Now she's at Chime, and we talked about cybersecurity and privacy issue. And what Mari talked about was how HIPAA only goes so far in terms of protecting consumers from what might happen to our clinical health records. Through the interoperability rule and its expected results, our personal health data, it sounds like, is going to go way beyond HIPAA-covered entities to third-party companies like app developers, you know, for our mobile phones and our computers. And we as computers, I guess, have to be a lot more careful about who we're going to give permission to access our health data. And, and your work at the AMA, as I understand, is on the same general issues, but you're mostly concerned with how this new world of interoperability is impacting the doctors themselves and other healthcare providers, and also including how, what it does to the patient-doctor relationship. So, Laura, we're very happy to have you join us on the Collective Voice of Health IT, a Weedy podcast. I'm thrilled to be here and talk to you today, Matthew. Thanks for having me. Great, Laurie. So to start off on the show, uh, we like to find out how uh, healthcare IT thought leaders such as yourself have, have gotten uh, sucked into this industry. Uh, I think what's fascinating with the healthcare industry is that many of our thought leaders start off in much different disciplines, or at least they didn't have healthcare industry as part of their life plan when they started out. So all superheroes have an origin story. What's What's your origin story, Laura? Well, I'm going to, you know, tell everybody that I talked to today that you referred to me as a superhero, so <laughs> they need to treat me accordingly. So thank you for that. Um, no, but uh, I appreciate the question. And and honestly, I, I always had a sense that I would be in healthcare, but the um, the role that I would play has certainly evolved throughout the years. So um, from, a, from a young age, um, unfortunately, you know, my, my dad became sick with uh, cancer when I was very young. And so I experienced, you know, a death in the family and kind of um, introduction to what, how important healthcare is and kind of early detection and prevention and um, the way that uh, poor health can really impact families. Um, 
and as I as I grew up, uh, certainly was I was very exposed to um, a lot of international events. I grew up in the '90s, and uh, you know, was was learning a lot about what was happening in other countries in terms of um, famine and war, and and so my idea early on was that I was going to become a doctor and um, live overseas and open you know a clinic in an area where uh, residents did not have access to healthcare services, even basic healthcare services. Um, so I went to, uh, to college, went to George Washington university and was, you know, preparing to be pre-med. Um, I will say that, you know, organic chemistry got in the way a little bit for me there. (laughs) Um, it was, it was not, not exactly, um, I didn't sail through that with flying colors and, you know, so that was kind of the first um, thought that maybe this wasn't the path that would utilize my skill set most effectively to improve health. Um, and and right around the same time, GW uh, began a new public health program. And so actually, I wound up I I, I switched my major to public health. Um, I wound up being actually the first graduate of that program at GW um, and, you know, took a couple of classes in particular that really kind of blew my mind open in terms of how one could affect and improve healthcare um, short of a medical degree or some kind of clinical degree. Um, took, you know, international development essentially in health and health law. Um, and it was really, you know, health law that got me thinking about, oh, gee, well, maybe I should go to law school and use, you know, some of the skills I, I had honed over maybe my teenage years and, and otherwise to argue and try to persuade um, as a way to help, you know, shape what healthcare really looks like. Um, so that led me to law school. Um, after and, and during law school, I, I really focused on health and human rights. Again, kind of had this international mindset, uh, thinking that that that's where I would wind up. Um, but then, you know, upon graduating in 2008, we were in the start of the recession. There wasn't a whole lot of money in uh, jobs for human rights lawyers at that point in time. So I wound up uh, working in... Um, a boutique law firm in Washington, D.C., where uh, our our clients were primarily grantees, federal grantees, so a lot of community health centers, Title X clinics, um, et cetera. Uh, and, and while I was there, oddly enough, um, there was a new regulation that came out that was referred to as the omnibus HIPAA rule, and essentially were all these new regulations having to do with um, HIPAA and, and data privacy. And I was kind of the you know low lawyer on the totem pole, so I was um, I, I saw this as an opportunity to to learn about something that no one else was really working on much at the firm at that point, and it turned out to be really um, serendipitous because now that's what I focus a lot of my work on at the AMA in terms of HIPAA and data privacy and. Um, and it's been great moving from the, the legal side of things to the, the policy shaping side of things. Um, because again, that was always my real goal is to try to shape things from the start instead of interpreting them or trying to fix them on the back end, um, to try to create policies and circumstances that 
best position people for for optimal health. Uh, so that's where I am today. Very, very good. And I, I think it's very interesting that you you thought of first becoming a doctor or, or on the clinical side, right? And and even though you ended up in policy and and maybe don't have that kind of that romantic image of doctors without frontiers, <laughs> right? And, and traveling the world. Um, what, what we used to say at CMS when we were working on policy and regulations is we might be sitting at a desk all day, but because we're working on policies, we're, we're working on policies that will probably save lives as well, right? Exactly. We might not be stopping the bleeding, but down the road, I think policy work saves lives as well. So, and, and I think we're all familiar with uh, the AMA, but maybe you can tell us a bit more about your, your current work with the organization. Sure. Um, yeah. So as you mentioned, I work on a lot of um, privacy and security issues. So health IT generally, um, I, I handle a lot of those issues. Um, again, strong strong focus on privacy and security. Um, also work on a handful uh, of administrative simplification issues, which I know will be familiar to, to Weedy's um, audience. You know, prior authorization, for example, is a, a really important uh, topic at the AMA. Um, but I also, um, another part of my portfolio deals with certain health equity issues. So I do a lot of work, um, advocating for, you know, LGBTQ populations and ensuring that, um, policies that are, uh, enacted, you know, do not disadvantage those populations. Um, and generally, you know, and just in my role overall as a, as being part of federal affairs, you know, I work with the executive branch. So I'm basically a lobbyist for, for the executive branch, and that involves, of course, reviewing regulations and writing comment letters, um, and essentially trying to advance the AMA's um, advocacy agenda when it comes to dealing with the different federal agencies. And so, so you've also had a lot of executive orders, I think, this year to deal with, right? <laughs> yes, <laughs> exactly. We've been very, very busy uh, over the last few years with all the deregulation efforts and 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 executive orders coming out of the White House. So. Good, good. And uh, I'm very interested in that, the health, health equity side of things and certainly prior authorization. We're going to dive in sometime in, in this show. But let's talk a bit more about the cybersecurity mm-hmm. and especially with our in, their, in this current pandemic. I mean, I think we're always worried about cybersecurity, but how is the to what extent has the pandemic altered how doctors and hospitals and other providers should think about cybersecurity? Yeah, I mean, clearly, I think the biggest change that we've seen um, from the pandemic that that kind of intersects with cybersecurity is the vast increase in the use of telemedicine. Um, you know, obviously, a lot of practices were shut down for a number of months when the pandemic began, and people were trying to socially distance and um, conserve resources, whether it be PPE or or other types of um, you know, clinical materials and supplies. Um, So there's been a real surge, of course, in the use of telehealth um, and probably has advanced policy um, that would have taken years to advance and condensed that down into a number of months. Um, So that's been a huge shift, but cybersecurity has been a, a really big, important part of that because as doctors shut down practices and their office-based settings, um, many of them started practicing from home uh, and offering these telemedicine services from home. And so, um, you know, most people do not have a really robust, uh, you know, 
network security setup uh, where they live, they might have, you know, many additional precautions that have been put in place in their office settings. Uh, so, so we wanted to make sure that in order for physicians and patients to feel comfortable using telemedicine and ensuring that information would remain private and secure uh, so that these technologies could take off and that people could get the care that they needed, um, we we tried to, you know, really emphasize the kinds of tools that that folks should be using, the kinds of uh, security steps they should take at home. Um, so one example is that we worked actually with the American Hospital Association, and early on in the pandemic, released. Um, a fact sheet essentially about how to safely work from home. And it provided some very practical tips and um, advice about how physicians could secure their home networks um, to make sure, again, that, you know, um, that that the patient information would remain secure because that's really critical to um, maintaining trust between the patient and physician. And we know that during COVID, cyber attacks um, have been on the rise. Um, you know, healthcare organizations have been targeted in a number of pretty significant ways. Um, and so we wanted our, our members and, again, our patients to feel like, okay, we can we can take this leap. We can use telehealth and telemedicine tools um, while, while ensuring that uh, that information remains secure and protected. Very. And what I think what's interesting about that is I think there's a lot of excitement around telehealth, right? And like you said, mm -hmm. I think it's leapt forward in a matter of months, what would have taken years in terms of poly shift. Um, but amid all this excitement, we often don't hear about the the, the, the possible threats to our privacy and to our uh, cybersecurity. So um, from those lists that you developed with the AHA, can you, can you give uh, us as consumers or the doctors maybe just one or two practical recommendations off those lists that, that we can all kind of think about and remember the next time we uh, think about using telehealth? Sure. I mean, um, generally, and, and I will say that these are not meant to be super technical. They're meant to be very approachable, um, particularly for those who don't have a lot of technical expertise. So they may sound kind of uh, simplistic, but I think they're, it's some of that low-hanging fruit that everybody can, can latch on to. You know, you want to make sure that you have um, good, secure um networks by maybe you have a separate network on your home Wi-Fi that is only devoted to um, to the to the telehealth and telemedicine activities that you're doing. So other people in your family aren't using the same network. Um, you want to make sure that passwords are really strong and that you aren't just using, you know, the same password that your router came with when someone came out to install, you know, your modem and your and your internet at your house. Um, things like ensuring that firewalls are enacted on your computer. Um, I mean, even things I would say uh, as simple as the platforms and tools that doctors are selecting to, to work with, you know, make sure that every available privacy tool that is um, an option is utilized. Um, try to use technology that provides end-to-end -end encryption. Um, just kind of those basic things that people should keep in mind, I think go a long way to, to help closing off the really um, vulnerable endpoints because, um, you know, cyber, cyber criminals will look for an easy way in first, right, before they do a whole lot of, um, 
digging to try to infiltrate a network. Um, and so if we can kind of secure off some of those really basic entry points to vulnerabilities, um, I think that helps to improve the overall health system that is connected. Very good. I think I think those are excellent recommendations. Uh, they might they might be uh, simple, but I, I think they're things that I wouldn't have thought about, right? And I think we get so kind of comfortable sometimes assuming somebody else is taking care of that, or our computer already has you know McGaffey or some of the security that's taking care of it that that we overlook it. So when we come back, we're going to continue our discussion with Laura Hoffman. Assistant Director of Federal Affairs with the American Medical Association. I'd like to ask Laura when we come back what she means when, in in a presentation on the subject, she said that healthcare cybersecurity is a patient safety issue. Uh, But for now, let's take a quick break and hear about more about Weedy from our producer, Michael McNutt. Take a seat at the table and let your voice be heard at Weedy's 2020 Virtual National Conference, October 16 through the 22nd. Weedy's annual educational showcase of best practices and emerging trends in health IT promises informative and insightful presentations and discussions focused on standards, regulations, innovation, and more. Speakers from ONC, CMS, plus the top payers, providers, solutions experts, advocates, and health IT organizations will be on hand to offer their thoughts on the biggest issues as they strive for meaningful change in the American healthcare system. Open to members and non-members. Share our content with your entire organization with our special corporate rates. Learn more at Weedy.org. Weedy's 2020 Virtual National Conference, October 16 through the 22nd. We're back and we're talking with Laura Hoffman, the Assistant Director of Federal Affairs with the AMA, on another episode of the Collective Voice of Health IT, a Weedy podcast. So, Laura, I've heard you state in presentations that cybersecurity is a patient safety issue. So what do you mean by that? And and what understanding can we gain by framing the issue as being about patient safety? Yeah, great question. And um, I'm, I'm glad that this phrase sort of stood out to you from the presentations, because I think that especially when we talk about data issues, security issues, things like that, it's really important important to kind of put a human face on these topics. Um, It's really easy to think of cybersecurity as this, you know, wonky, very technical that, you know, should just be left to the health IT nerds, right? And that actually is, I think, a a counterproductive approach. um, Because if we see that, um, that people are really impacted by the actions we take with respect to to privacy and security, it helps frame things differently. Um, Especially, I think, for doctors who are dealing with, you know, they're they're pulled in a million different directions every day, and they deal with, um, you know, numerous federal, state, professional regulations and requirements. You need to really explain why something matters to their patients um, to help convey the importance of a particular topic. So with cybersecurity, when I say it's a patient safety issue, you know, let's think a little bit about, well, what happens when a practice does not have good cybersecurity? What happens when they maybe uh, are faced with a cyber attack? Um, And by the way, you know, 83% of physicians have reported that they've experienced some form of cyber attack based on a wow. survey that we did a couple of years ago. Yeah. Um, so 
so, you know, a lot of times what can happen is your practice is shut down, right? You need to take time to figure out, let's say there's ransomware that, that infects your, your systems. You need to figure out how to get your records back. You need to figure out um, how, to, how to recover information. And in the meantime there, you know, not only is your, your business suffering, um, but you can't see new patients. Um, if patients present to you, you may not have a way to pull up records to know what their diagnoses are or to know what their medications are. Um, if records are accessed and distorted or somehow corrupted, you know, you lose basically a person's medical history potentially, which can have really serious effects on their, um, on their health. So, so rather than thinking of cybersecurity as another burden, another, you know, thing that has to be dealt with, another expense, we really need to, to think about, gosh, if I'm, if I face a cyber attack, my practice could be out for days or weeks at a time. Um, and it's, and I have a commitment to my patients to make sure that their information is available so that they remain safe. You know, it, we're not even thinking at the moment, we're not even talking about medical devices, right? If I'm sure everyone has seen the, the Homeland episode where, um, you know, the vice president's, uh, pacemaker is hacked into and and he does not fare well from that. So there are real patient consequences to um, to a lack of cybersecurity. And I think that that framing helps to convey the message that, um, that you know, it's something to take seriously and, and pay attention to. Very, very good. I, I think putting a human face on, to, on it is excellent. And I think this also kind of circles around to the point earlier I made about, you know, if you're in cybersecurity, you're also saving lives. You know, you need cybersecurity for the, the safety and the health and well-being of your patients. So you, you've talked a lot about how doctors uh, should be thinking about cybersecurity. And I know last week, Mari was talking about consumers and cybersecurity and, and you're in policy. So you're talking to lawmakers about cybersecurity. Who, who bears the most responsibility or, or who maybe can influence uh, protecting to the greatest extent possible uh, the American public from cybersecurity attacks, do you think? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a real team sport, I think, um, and everyone kind of has a, a different role to play. Um, I think there is more recognition um, in recent years that, you know, we can't just leave cybersecurity to, like, the large health systems that are well-resourced um, and, you know, both, both with money and kind of human human bodies and, and expertise. Um, so, you know, there's, there's been more attention paid to the fact that like small, small practices need to be a part of, of the solution here. Um, and I think so, so in, in a way we all kind of need to be speaking this common language, right. Which goes back to how we frame it. If we're all thinking about patient safety, um, instead of it just being a technical issue, it takes 
the onus off of just, you know, the IT folks, the IT developers, um, and spreads that a little bit to the other stakeholders. So IT developers, you know, they should be thinking about how to build and implement health IT tools that contribute to the overall security and safety of patients and educate providers on how to use those tools safely and securely. Um, you know, again, health systems, large health systems absolutely play a big role in um, in helping to keep health networks secure. But again, as, as we see more kind of value-based care and integrated health systems, you might have a small practice that is hosted on um, a larger health systems network. And that small practice, again, kind of going back to what I said in the beginning, that could be the most vulnerable endpoint that cyber attackers will target. So large health systems and small health systems in a community, for example, should be communicating, talking to one another, planning strategically about how to keep their networks as a whole secure. Um, and the federal government can certainly help provide and create positive incentives that will facilitate those activities. Um, you know, they should promote and, and put forth policies that uh, will positively incentivize people to adopt good cyber hygiene, you know, without creating additional um, physician burden that isn't necessary. You know, they can make exceptions in um, the Stark and anti-kickback laws that allow large health systems to share hardware and expertise without running afoul of, of federal law. And they, they actually have taken some significant steps in that area, um, in part, because of um, advocacy from healthcare organizations about this and, and others. Um, so I think, you know, everybody plays a role, um, but there are things that will essentially benefit everybody in the healthcare system if people are more educated and informed about what cybersecurity entails. And again, if we have kind of the end goal in mind of making sure that the patient's information is is always um, protected and and available when needed. Yeah, you, you make up some great great points. Uh, and and what I'm hearing too is I feel like cybersecurity is almost like the wrong term because it suddenly becomes wonkish. It's like something the IT guys have to worry about. It's something that mm -hmm. like I didn't study that, nor at least I, I flunked that course in in college, right? And 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 yet um, the cybersecurity, the IT people can make all every you know the wall as big as, as they'd like, but if we don't use it, right, that gets back yeah. to your recommendations on, on what we should, how we should prep our houses, right, for, for telehealth. Mm -hmm. um, if we don't use that IT on the one, one hand, and also I think the statistics show that, that uh, cybersecurity, uh, the, the hackers often get in not through a IT, but through a human yeah. uh, error, right? <laughs> or That's a, right. Or pressing the wrong button for the, through their phishing attacks and things, so it's a very human issue. Even though the IT guys might be working on uh, on the tools to to do it, um, so so you are in policy and federal policy. Let's let's talk a little bit about the interoperability rule, which I think is going to open up a whole nother kind of world of cybersecurity and privacy uh, questions. And maybe let's start with the interoperability rule itself. I know it's it's in cement. Uh, we're, we're rolling towards implementation next year. Uh, but if you had to, to change or add to that rule at all, um, what, what would you have suggested or, or what would you suggest to lawmakers in the future uh, to make it a better law? Oh, 
Man, see, if I was if I was really a superhero, I would snap my fingers <laughs> and, and make this happen. Um, so I'm sure I'm I'm biased here, and I can't speak for everybody at the AMA, but personally, what I would change is um, I would inject much more. Um, I would guess I would say to once again use a wonkish term inject more privacy by design into the regulation. Um, and I know that's usually kind of used uh, with more of a hardware perspective in terms of, you know, doing things by design. But, um, and Mari, I'm sure talked about this, but, you know, there are, the interoperability rule, the information blocking rule um, does a great thing in that it makes it so much easier for patients to be able to access their health information through apps. Um, I think that's something that's really important. It's really critical. I mean, I've filed my own OCR complaint (laughs) trying to get access to my information. So I understand um, the real deficit there in terms of um, how difficult it can be for patients to access their information. Um, That said, I fear that by... uh, you know, failing to implement some kind of really concrete policies around privacy um, with this interoperability rule that we may be substituting one problem for another um, and that, you know, we're giving, of course, patients access to their own information. But at the same time, the way they're doing that is by using third-party apps, which are not bound generally speaking, by any kind of privacy law. Um, So we're really providing the information not only to the patients, but also to these app developers. Um, Mm -hmm. And again, I'm I'm sure Mari touched on this, but, you know, I'd be remiss to not point out that we hear time and time again that um, information gleaned from individuals using smartphone apps is often shared with third parties in ways that that the individuals are not aware of. And that can create real problems. You know, we're talking about putting a human face on things. Um, you know, there are, there are studies done that show that, you know, when information, including health information, um, is shared with insurers or with data brokers, um, that can have really detrimental effects on, on, on people and their livelihoods, their employment, their housing options. Um, and so, you know, the AMA um, did a lot of work last year to try to come up with some ideas about ways to um, inject additional privacy protections into this rule. And um, we're going to continue, even though the rule has been finalized and didn't include those recommendations, we're going to um, keep pushing forward and trying to work with standards development organizations um, and other work groups and, and um, collaborations uh, to see if there are ways that before we have a federal privacy law that will provide better protections to individuals using technology um, outside of the the HIPAA protections, we're we're trying to see if there are things we can do in the meantime that will help bridge that gap um, and make people feel more comfortable using technology. And you know, honestly, this is COVID has provided an example for why this kind of um, these kinds of guardrails and protections are so important. I mean, we've seen a lot of hesitancy um, from the general public to use things like digital contact tracing apps for fear that that information will be um, inappropriately shared. And so that's actually 
wound up um, inhibiting the adoption of new technology. And a lot of times when people hear privacy, they think, oh, you know, someone's trying to silo information or shut down the flow of information or interoperability. And and I see it differently. You know, I, I, I think that if people kind of know the rules of the game, then they decide whether they want to play. Um, and if we are able to, to tell people hey, this is how your information is going to be used. This is how it's not going to be used. And it's very transparent and um, and plainly stated so that people truly do understand it. They can make better informed decisions and they'll feel more comfortable using technologies that they might not otherwise be comfortable using. Yeah. Um, so, I think that's a, a great example too of, of the, the contact tracing and how there's distrust around that already. Um, and you used a, a term which I'm not familiar with, uh, privacy by design. What do you mean by that? Um, I guess I just mean by trying to build things in from the start. Uh, so rather than, you know, uh, focusing on, hey, let's just get all the data out there and figure out privacy later. Um, you know, when you when you take that mindset, you wind up with kind of like bolt on policies or mm. um, restrictions. And that's often a little bit messier and you wind up trying to correct things down the line um, that would have been much more easily addressed if you tackled them from the start. Um, you know, and particularly with something like data, it, it's kind of like once the genie's out of the bottle, it's out. You know, it's hard to pull your data back in once other sources have it, right? So right. when I when I say privacy by design, it means trying to think about as as the federal government and other stakeholders, you know, develop policy and policy recommendations, thinking about ways to achieve multiple goals at once. You know, it doesn't have to be oh, gee, should we prioritize patient access or should we prioritize privacy? You can do both of those things and provide better access to information while still ensuring that people understand what will be done with that information once it leaves the the protections of the HIPAA um, kind of paradigm. Right, right. So think ahead of, of and think about what the what the consequences could be before before facing the yeah. consequences and figuring out how to fix it. Excellent, excellent. Exactly. Yeah. Build the build the uh, car with the seatbelts already in them. You and, got it. You got uh, it. Good. So uh, I want to break away from your your specific work for a moment and just talk to you as someone who has who has lived and breathed healthcare and law and policy for now over twelve years, and then thought about it your whole life. It sounds like so. Any broader thoughts, more global thoughts, maybe on where the American healthcare system direction is headed in a, in a post-pandemic world? Well, I think, you know, it, this has already started, so I'm not sure how, um, how original this thought is, but more and more, I just see kind of the boundaries between quote-unquote healthcare um, and the rest of the world breaking down. Um, you know, COVID certainly, as we've talked about today, has shifted um, delivery of care right from inside the four walls of a clinic uh, to being in people's houses. Um, and, you know, the more we have different kinds of digital health tools like remote patient monitoring and um, tools that can be used for patient-generated health data to be provided back to a clinician that might help to inform treatment plans, um, all that kind of 
data and information is is being generated outside of what we might think of as you know the current healthcare system. Um, and so, you know, I think um, basically as time goes on, we're going to need to think about, and this it gets to the the privacy issues as well, right? I mean, again, we there's all kinds of um, health data that is generated outside of our federal health privacy law. And that, that blurs the lines here about like what's health data and what isn't health data. Um, you know, you might not think that location data on its face is, is health, but if you're going to a clinic, um, regularly once a week for a number of months, that can lead to inferences about an individual's health. So I think that, um, Essentially, I guess what I'm trying to say is I think the silos are, are hopefully breaking down a little bit um, around the healthcare system. And that just means that more and more we're going to have to start evaluating um, policies from from even more angles than than we currently do. You know, thinking about equity and how various policies, you know, improve not only kind of the traditional aspects of healthcare and outcomes and care delivery. But how does how does that intersect with equity? Um, again, the data piece, I won't go into that again, but I think there's a real intersection there. Um, and so it, it challenges all of us in the field to really broaden our lens and um, and think about the kinds of things that uh, that also determine someone's health and well-being that are that are outside um what we traditionally think about. So more of the upstream kind of causes of, of good or bad health. Um, so it'll be very interesting, I think, especially in the next couple of years in the wake of COVID um, to watch the field kind of coalesce around what things are important to health and, and what things maybe are less so these days now that the site of healthcare delivery um, has had such a big shift this year. Yeah. I, I think that's very insightful. I think it's very interesting, and, and it, it it's 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 slightly different from things that other guests have brought in. But we've talked about how you know suddenly healthcare is not just you know something that's on the fourth or fifth page of the newspaper. It's on the mm-hmm. front page of our newspaper. We talk about it at barbecues. It's in our we talk about it at dinner every day, right? Like 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 talking about healthcare and health is is much more. <laughs> Are a part of our everyday life, and we think about it every time we walk into a store, right? So it, 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 it is a whole different view, I think, of 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 healthcare. And I think thinking of policies and how that's going to affect policies is going to be very, very interesting in the coming futures in the in the coming days. And and I think there's always been this argument that that Americans in general don't like to think about their health. They like, right? They segregate it. They silo it themselves and say, well, my doctor will worry about that, or you know, yeah. I'll, I'll worry about that later, but but I think maybe that may change us actually taking ownership of not just our healthcare, but you know consumer payments and things like that. So so this has been very very interesting, and I'm, I'd love to get you back for a discussion on equity issues certainly and and prior authorization. Before we sign off, though, uh, are there any resources uh, you think listeners, uh, providers out there, or just consumers uh, should check out um, that you're aware of to give them more information on some of the things we talked about today? Oh, sure. And I would love to come back anytime. Um, but yeah, a couple of resources, I guess I would just highlight is on the AMA's website, which is ama-assn.org. So amaassociation.org. Um, we have uh, a number of pages on cybersecurity with some of the resources that I talked about today, including that AMA 
AHA um, telehealth sheet, and we are working on a follow-up to that, which hopefully will be available in the next um, couple of weeks. Um, and, and we have additional resources on our site, you know, including webinars and, um, and checklists uh, that hopefully folks will find helpful. So check that out. And, and it includes updates from time to time about, you know, things that are going on in the cybersecurity world. Um, and the other thing I would mention is that earlier this year, we released a set of privacy principles um, and that that addresses kind of what we were talking about today, that health information that exists outside of the protections of HIPAA um, and the AMA, again, <laughs> recognizing kind of the, the blurring of the uh, space between you know, in the office, out of the office, healthcare data, non-healthcare data, we wanted to develop a set of principles to help guide uh, where we think the industry should go when it comes to federal privacy legislation or other kinds of privacy frameworks. Um, and that includes um, recognition, not just of kind of entity responsibilities and individual rights, but also does um, address aspects of equity as well um, in that document. So I'd encourage folks to, to check that out. Um, and hopefully it will be helpful to, to people listening. Terrific, terrific. Thank you, Laura. This has been a great discussion with Laura Hoffman, Assistant Director of Federal Affairs with the AMA. Uh, one of Weedy's primary functions is to keep health plans and hospitals and other providers educated on health IT. And as an active member of Weedy, Laura, we very much appreciate the time and expertise you give. Uh, look, look forward to having you join us again. Thank you so much, Matthew. Thank great you. To be here. Very good. This has been the Collective Voice of Health IT, a Weedy podcast where the health information technology community connects, collaborates, and creates solutions for a better health system. Find this episode and many more on our website, weedy.org. Thank you all for joining us and be safe.